Hello and welcome. I'm Georgina Wright from the IFG's Brexit team. Brexit is back in the news. Uh, we now have less than two months to reach an agreement, vote on that agreement and get everything in place um, before the 1st of January, when deal or no deal, the UK and the EU will be cooperating on radically different terms. The Prime Minister indicated he wanted a deal by the end of this week. EU leaders will also be discussing the state of talks when they meet in Brussels later this week. So what can we expect over the coming weeks? I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by a very distinguished panel to discuss the politics, the technical and the time available for Brexit. Um, I'm joined by Dame Carolyn Furburn, uh, Director General of the Confederation of British Industry, Tony Colley, Europe Editor at RTE News, James Forsyth, political editor at The Spectator, and Sam Lowe, who is senior research fellow at the Centre for European Reform. Hello to you all. So before we start, just a few housekeeping rules. Um, this event is being live streamed. There will be a recording available after the event on all our social media platforms, should you wish to watch this all over again. Uh, we will be live tweeting um, and do also tweet if you like using the hashtag um, at uh, so hashtag IFG Brexit and if you'd like to submit a question then please do so in the chat box um, we have a Q&A monitor who will make sure I see your question and I will try and ensure that I ask as many as possible so we have about 55 minutes so let's get the discussion underway and do keep your questions coming right where are we um, Tony, perhaps I can start with you first. Um, we know that EU leaders are meeting in Brussels for their quarterly summit um, and Brexit is on the agenda. What is the mood like in Brussels right now and do they think a deal is possible? Thanks, uh, Georgina. Um, the mood, I think, is somewhat tentative at the moment. Um, just to bring you up to speed, Michel Barnier has been in Luxembourg this morning briefing European Affairs Ministers on the negotiations. The word I'm getting back from there is that there's been a bit of movement on the level playing field, but not so much on fisheries. So on the one hand, there is a bit of clarity in that we know there are a finite number of, of problem areas, fisheries, the level playing field, governance. Um, so, so that, in a sense, makes things clear for everyone. Um, however, I think there is some anxiety about things being reduced to those simple areas um, in the sense that fisheries member states are worried at the way this is being presented as uh, the British give ground on the level playing field on state aid and the Europeans give ground on fisheries. Um, and I think fisheries still has the potential to become a major problem uh, in the negotiations in general and a major problem uh, at the summit. Um, now, this is a somewhat unusual summit in that it's the first time for quite a long time that Brexit has been a uh, prominent uh, issue on the agenda at the summit. And it's the first time that leaders have had a chance to, to internalise the fact that we are not really talking about the political declaration as the starting point anymore. Um, it's clear that Boris Johnson has departed quite some distance from the political declaration, but leaders haven't really had a, a discussion amongst themselves about what that means, uh, what the implications of that are for both the UK and for the EU. And so I think for that reason, we are going to get quite a bit of the summit devoted to um, preparedness, uh, which is, of course, a euphemism for, for no deal. And Boris Johnson says Australia, we say over here in Brussels, uh, preparedness. Um, because even if there is a deal, even if the best case deal uh, emerges, then it's still going to require a lot of changes for member states to uh, metabolise. Um, so I think coming into the summit, um, leaders won't want to trespass on the negotiations, which are ongoing, of course, uh, side by side. Michel Barnier is going to brief leaders uh, on, on progress, but they won't want to get into the weeds on on stuff, but if if they are going to be discussing the level playing field and state aid and fisheries, then I think it's inevitable that leaders will have to, you know, get into uh, some degree of detail and what kind of 
concessions they're prepared to make or what kind of message they give to Michel Barnier to keep going. Um, I think it's very unlikely that he's going to have his mandate changed. Um, so uh, it's it's really a question of how this is managed by the leaders uh, in terms of the signalling they give to him and, and to the UK. Um, but I think overhanging all of that, there is this concern about fish and, and the fact that Emmanuel Macron, the French president, is going to play a starring role uh, on that front. Uh, it's a big political issue for him, but not just for him, for, for other countries, um, for Ireland, the, the country I know best, as commissioners might say. Um, so I think there is potential for some drama at the summit around fish. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a summit like no other, um, let's put it that way. That's really interesting, particularly because there has been, um, I guess, a, a, a sort of question here in London about the degree to which EU leaders have been uh, watching closely uh, this negotiation and whether actually those potential deadlocks can only be unlocked at the highest level. James, um, perhaps I can come to you next. Um, Michael Gove and um, Lord Foss said last week in Parliament that there had been progress, significant progress in the negotiations. Um, in your view, does the government think that a deal is possible by the end of the year? I, I think they certainly think a deal is possible. I think this October 15th deadline has kind of fallen away. And I think they're going to now the new British test is, you know, are negotiations moving forward? And does the summit kind of add to that sense? If so, they'll, they'll stick at it. I think cynically, there's also a feeling that you, know, you don't want to leave too much time for it, if, if Barnier and Frost can come up with a deal. You don't want to leave too much time for people to unpick it for precisely the reasons Tony was pointing to about fish. So I think they, they quite like this, if a deal was reached, for it to be a kind of take it or leave it moment for uh, the, the EU member states. Uh, I, I think that, you know, I think that Boris Johnson is, is uh, dug in on fish, uh, but I think they, they I think the benefits of a deal are becoming clearer to more and more people around him. And so I think, I mean, I, I think the kind of, I, I think there's still, I mean, there is still in, in Whitehall a kind of cautious, but growing optimism that there will be some resolution to this and a deal by the end of the year. Great. And I'm, I'm very keen to come back to that timing um, uh, question uh, later on, because, of course, it's not just about reaching a deal. It's also particularly on the EU side, allowing kind of time to vote and for scrutiny on that deal. So um, perhaps we can come back to that. Um, Carolyn, um, obviously, reaching a deal is, is only part of the challenge. Um, both sides also need time to prepare for a radically new training uh, environment that will come into force. You know, are your members holding out for a deal? And if so, what are they expecting? Uh, well, first of all, good, good, uh, good afternoon, Georgina. Um, well, you, you're you're absolutely right. I think businesses um, do realise that whatever happens, there's going to be real change in in December. Um, and um, you could argue that on paper, the difference between a really thin deal and no deal uh, is not that great, but actually it is very, very significant. Uh, and um, whether they're holding out for a deal, I think um, it is fair to say that um, the vast majority really, really want a deal. We have just surveyed our members, 77% want a deal, 4% uh, want no deal. Um, it's a pretty uh, substantial uh, majority. Um, but they, I think that they uh, see the benefits of a deal over over no deal as being in three main areas. So the fact that we would almost certainly trade tariff free. Now, um, for our services sectors, that's not the main issue. But for automotive, for example, it is the single most significant uh, issue. And just talking to Andy Street uh, the other day about the impact on the West Midlands, it would be absolutely uh, 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 extraordinary. Um, we also uh, know that if you get a deal, the opportunity to build up from that is really significant. And we might talk more about that. The fact there could then be a services chapter that is developed over the course of the coming year. Um, we know we need to get data right. So there is a, a foundation that gets created by uh, a deal. And there's also something I think just really fundamental about the 
the dynamics and the relationship between the UK and the European Union um, if we do get one. So um, I think it's a really clear uh, uh, picture in terms of what businesses want. In terms of what they expect, I mean, I think that they really, um, uh, I think, are, are watching very carefully the events of this week. I think they accept that the date of October is almost certainly going to be uh, missed but they are, I think, really hoping uh, that politicians on both sides will uh, secure a deal. Really, by mid-November, I think that there is kind of a backstop date emerging, which is more about the first week of November. Great. And again, I think it will be um, quite interesting to come back to that question. Is mid-November, is that enough time to prepare? Um, Sam, um, you and I have spoken a lot about the need for compromise um, if a deal is to be reached and compromise will require movement on, on both sides. Where, in your view, might the UK and the EU compromise and do you think their disagreements can be resolved? I do, I do think they can be resolved. And I think also that if you just take, take a step back and just look at the choreography of the negotiations over the last year, they've largely gone exactly as expected. No one expected a deal before the summer. The summer, we expected a sort of difficult summer following it. We expected the UK to act out at some point. I, I assumed it would be walking out of the negotiations, but the internal market bill served the same role. And then it would come down to a political decision made in the autumn. And that's where we are now. In terms of the type of movement that's needed to conclude a deal, if we think about where the EU needs to move, it needs to fundamentally accept that the UK isn't going to accept dynamic alignment on state aid and that the status quo isn't going to prevail when it comes to fish. The EU seems to have accepted the first one, which is about state aid, and on fish, it, it's getting there. But on the UK side, uh, the fundamental compromise is the acceptance that level playing field commitments, so on labour environment, and then we put subsidies in a different category, are binding under the treaty and enforceable. That's what the UK is going to need to accept. This is it's its commitments not to roll back uh, labour and environmental uh, uh, commitments uh, are, by, are enforceable and could lead to tariff preferences being withdrawn in future if the UK is to renege on those commitments and then on subsidies accepting binding principles at least. Uh, and uh, again, the preferences could be withdrawn if the UK breaches its commitments. Those are the big steps. And to me, it's just looking at the UK side here that can be sold domestically as a victory because the EU will have moved away from its opening positions. The UK will have its own independent state aid regime. Yes, it will have made commitments. Yes, it runs the risk of tariffs being reimposed in future if it misbehaves, but it will have largely got some of what it wants. Great. And you, you kind of um, touched on this, and I think it's an important segue to kind of the next batch of questions that I wanted to ask, which is, you know, Obviously, the optics of this negotiation matter hugely for both sides. Um, and maybe I can, I can turn to you. You know, you said the, the government wants a deal. Um, there's cautious optimism in Whitehall that the deal might be reached, that there will be a compromise. But, you know, does the government really care whether there's a deal? And are there limits at which point it, it is ready to walk away, in your view? I mean, there are certainly limits. Uh, I think that, you know, the deal would need to enable them to say that they've ticked the boxes of money, borders and laws. I also think that fishing has taken on this kind of symbolism of saying, you know, we are now once again a kind of sovereign nation, you know, kind of slightly, all that kind of slightly grandiose rhetoric. And I think that is, that is the importance of fishing. I think fishing is also complicated by the Scottish factor, which is, you know, everyone in government is becoming increasingly concerned about the union, and all the arguments around that. And one, I think there's a broad sense that um, no deal might help the SNP make its case in some ways, because they'll point to chaos and, and the like. There's also an awareness that um, if the UK struck a deal on fishing, the SNP would be immediately out of the blocks to say that Scottish fishermen have been sold down the river to you know, advance the interests of the City of London or the like. So I, I think on fishing, there is a particular, there is a particular need to say, there's been a decisive break with Britain's membership of the EU. There's also the Scottish factor. And then finally, there's this act, which is it's often, you know, people say, look, fishing is a tiny part of the economy. It is a tiny part of the economy, but it is the people who are concerned about it are concentrated in particular places. And that means under our parliamentary first past the post system, it actually is an outsized political uh, factor. Yeah, that's interesting and again shows that Brexit isn't just about the UK and the EU, but very much about domestic uh, politics and how it play out 
plays out as well. Um, which Tony, maybe coming to you, you know, we know that Michel Barnier, I mean, has spent years looking at this, negotiating this. He he clearly wants a deal. I think it's fair to say, but you know, building on what you were saying earlier, do do you think the EU twenty seven want one? And in particular, and we've got a question on this as well, has the UK Internal Market Bill made a difference here? I think the EU does want a deal. And the you know, the closer you get to the European seaboard, uh, where you've got that concentration of trade uh, with the UK, then the sentiment is, is more concentrated. But the, the thing that I've been struck by time and again in reporting on this and, and talking to diplomats from member states is that, you know, they're, they're very worried about a, a kind of a messy deal that that everybody pays for then for years to come. You know, they they emphasise that this is going to be a relationship that isn't going anywhere. You know, geographically, <laughs> both sides are there. Um, it, it's got to work for for decades to come, and uh, we we can't be getting into you know dispute resolution every every six months. Um, so I think the the you know the the, the sense is that. Um, some member states will suffer more than others, uh, Ireland in particular, if there's a no deal. But overall, the EU as a whole uh, will be able to um, absorb a no deal better than the UK. I mean, that, that's that's kind of doctrine around here. Um, but of course, uh, you know, they can't disregard the impact of no deal on countries like Ireland. Um, also, I think the EU has really been, you know, completely consumed by the, the pandemic and the, the European Green Deal. To an extent, a lot of people would just wish this problem would go away. Um, and I think that's why they want to get this done. They don't want this to be dragging on. Um, but th that's not sort of felt in as concentrated a way as it is in the UK. Uh, I mean, th th these feelings are, are dispersed around different capitals and are sort of variegated. Uh, on the internal market bill, yeah, it has definitely had an, an impact and it has definitely damaged trust. And it has also meant the, U the EU has strengthened its resolve on the uh, dispute settlement mechanism uh, and the whole governance question. And also because th there is the question of the finance bill, you know, the, the other shoe kind of falling at some point that, that people are still worried about what that's going to contain. Um, but I think the EU in general has been trying to decouple the anger over the internal market bill on the one hand with the legal action that the uh, that the Commission has taken um, and the free trade negotiations on the other. Um, but these things are going to converge eventually because at the end of this month the, we, we hit the EU's uh, deadline. But we also hit the, the deadline for the UK to respond to the um, letter of formal notice from the Commission. Um, and that, again, brings the whole thing back into, into sharper focus. But people will have noticed last week that Michael Gove, when asked about this in the House of Lords Committee, you know, if if all of the problem areas in the, the Northern Ireland Protocol get somehow dissolved by the Joint Committee and by a free trade agreement, is the UK prepared then to drop the offending clauses in the bill? And he said, well, we'll wait and see. Um, mm. No, he didn't say, no, those clauses are going to be there forever and a day. Uh, so I think that that has been noted. Um, but it, it really has damaged trust. Uh, I think particularly Ursula von der Leyen, the Commission president, uh, was personally, you know, almost offended by by this in that, you know, is this how you treat uh, a partner with whom you are in negotiations uh, for an extremely important um, treaty? Before I, I turn to Sam very quickly, do you think the EU are expecting a formal response from, from the UK to that infringement procedure? Or is it sort of, regardless of what the UK says, what we're really watching out for is what the final inter UK internal market bill looks like? Yeah, I mean, of course, there's a there, there's a, a procedure underway, uh, you know, a legal procedure. So they will be expecting to get a, a formal response. I mean, if the UK just ignored the letter from the Commission, you know, it's not a great look uh, in terms of statecraft, if nothing else. Um, but I think what really matters to the to the EU is that the, the those clauses are gone um, by the time the European Parliament ratifies the treaty. And, you know, the, the Parliament, the European Parliament's ratification is a, it, it's a kind of a mechanism that the EU has um, 
how the EU kind of attaches that caveat or that condition to a free trade agreement just in the room is, is a different matter. Um, I mean, clearly the EU is going to want to know that those clauses will be gone when they say, right, this is the agreement um, that we've, we've, I mean, the, the, the negotiators reach agreement, it then goes to the General Affairs Council uh, to, to, you know, give the uh, councils um, imprimatur, then it goes through all the, you know, the, the legal scrubbing and the translation, and then it goes to the European Parliament. Um, at some stage along the, the way, the EU itself, not the European Parliament, is going to want to be pretty confident that they are not sort of uh, under, you know, negotiating under duress, duress, uh, that they have some kind of purchase on on these uh, clauses being being removed from the bill, uh, as well as the European Parliament having that ability to reject um, the treaty uh, in the middle of December. I mean, that would be a pretty dramatic moment if the European Parliament votes down the treaty that European governments have, have agreed. Indeed. Um, and actually, I was asked about that. Um, it, when I gave evidence the other week, and I think it will be interesting to see, going back on to James's point about leaving it to the last possible moment um, to reach a deal, um, do you then, in the meantime, have a European Parliament that becomes more and more vocal to make sure that they've had their say? Um, Sam, in, in practical terms, we've heard, you know, deal or no deal. What, what difference does, does a deal make? And is it, you know, can you reassure EU leaders that that's it if we have a deal? that's all done and dusted, or or is Brexit just the gift that we'll keep on giving? Well, the UK and EU's relationship will evolve over time. And I think everyone just needs to accept that. This isn't the final, this, if there is a deal, it won't be the final word on that relationship. It will evolve, it will change along with changes in governments on both sides of the channel. And that just needs to be accepted. You look at the Swiss relationship, it's not something that's set in stone, and that will be true of the UK as well. In terms of preparing for the end of the year and practical issues and practical differences between a deal and no deal. From a business perspective, and if you're just preparing, preparing for the end of the year without a deal looks very much the same as preparing for the end of the year with a deal. If you're thinking about how you get goods over a border, the same friction will arise either way, as in you're now going to have to deal with import-export declarations, there's going to be checks on products of animal origin, you're going to have to if there's a deal, actually, you then have to deal with rules of origin because tariff-free trade is actually conditional. It's not unconditional. So that's one difference, but it's a difference in a negative uh, way when you're talking about a deal. However, a deal is, of course, still preferable to not. And I've sort of I've boiled it down to five reasons. The first is that tariff-free trade, or at least the possibility of tariff-free trade, is still very valuable to lots of companies. Uh, the other is that a deal potentially comes with supplementary benefits in that the EU is more likely to grant equivalents of financial services and adequacy for data if there is a trade agreement. Technically, these issues are unrelated because the decision on financial services equivalents and data adequacy is a unilateral EU decision. But politically, of course, they're linked. And of course, it is more likely the UK will be looked upon favourably in the event of a deal. Uh, the third uh, reason I would give is this it opens up a deal opens up the possibility of bilateral mitigation so that that probably sounds a bit technical but it means that there is the possibility that on day 1 the EU and UK will work together to try and take the edge off some of the day 1 friction it also opens up the possibility at least technically speaking of a future implementation period of course i think we might discuss that and politically that's not something that anyone on either side of the channel wants to discuss right now but it is technically possible and it also a deal means that uh, both sides of the channel it's, there's a better working environment the french the french customs officers are less likely to be uh, very finickety about how they go about their checks the risk profile of the uk might be dropped it actually does help on the edges of the day uh, when it comes to managing the day one friction. The fourth reason I'd give for a deal being better than not is that the Northern Ireland Protocol works more readily. There is this question regarding the Northern Ireland Protocol, and Tony alluded to it, and it's this issue that could get addressed unilaterally by the UK in the Finance Bill, and it's the issue of whether goods entering Northern Ireland have EU tariffs levied upon them. And it's this whole question about whether goods entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain are at risk of onward transport into the EU. In the event of a trade agreement for products where the UK also applies the same tariff as the EU on imports from elsewhere in the world, the risk profile drops massively for many goods entering Northern Ireland and it just becomes less of a problem. And the fifth reason is one that was mentioned by Caroline, a deal is a platform upon which to build. 
Uh, there are, of course, some people maybe uh, on the back benches who don't like to hear that. But the deal is, is the opening salvo. And, of course, it could evolve over time and the UK could actually become, uh, could reintegrate with the EU over time if that's something the UK and the EU wanted. And, of course, exiting without a deal, of course, the relationship will still evolve over time then, but you're starting from a much uh, lower base. Great, thanks, Sam. Um, Caroline, Sam was just saying, actually, preparation looks a lot the same, whether it's for a deal or no deal. Um, you know, one of the things that the Institute of Government has been looking at is obviously uh, readiness for, for the end of the transition period. And one of the things that we've been looking at particularly is around government communication. Mm. I mean, my question to you is, do you think the government's message around readiness is cutting through? Do you think businesses... Uh, know that they need to uh, prepare and that they know exactly what they need to prepare for. Uh, we are deeply concerned about business readiness. So actually, um, at the risk of making Sam's list even longer, I would add a sixth reason for um, the value of a deal, because we're finding something, I think, very, very, very interesting, very worrying in the business community, which is that without a deal, um, they're not focusing on preparing, even though technically it's right that the difference between no deal uh, and a deal in terms of border checks are roughly the same. There is nothing to focus on. And actually, there's some research which shows that 40 percent of businesses believe that the transition period is going to be extended. Uh, and you know, that's extremely worrying. At the ZBI, we've been trying to do all we can. We've got a, you know, a very powerful transition hub online. We're communicating to our members on a daily basis about the importance of preparation. And actually, by and large, big businesses um, are in better shape. So, you know, if you're automotive or for your, if you're in banking or, or insurance, you, you've, you've pretty well uh, got your house in order. But if you're an SME, you still don't feel you know what you're preparing for, and it is just not happening. Uh, and in terms of the, um, and you've got to, you know, we haven't even mentioned the, the, the sort of the blitzing effect of COVID. I mean, the fact is that um, Brexit was pushed off the uh, the board agenda for 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 months, uh, and um, quite rightly actually, because so many businesses were concerned with survival. And you've got stockpiles that have been depleted and cash reserves that have been depleted. So actually, the best thing that we could do now to focus businesses on preparing is to get a deal. That actually, I think, is what we could take out uh, to our members and everybody uh, into business communities and say, now you know, now, now it's here and we've got three months and let's get all hands on deck uh, and get uh, prepared. And in terms of the government's communication campaign, I mean, one of the challenges that we have is that, of course, there were two previous um, you know, jumps up this particular hill uh, last year. And I had many members saying to me after that, we're just not going to do that again. Uh, I was with a marquee manufacturer this this week who had lost, um, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of pounds through stockpiles he didn't need and just said, I'm just not going to do it again, particularly in a COVID world. Uh, so I think this is a real concern. And frankly, it is, I think, I would just add it, as I say, to Sam's list of, of, of six, get a deal and you will get businesses preparing. We have a number of questions that are coming in, um, particularly around uh, no deal and bridging measures. But, Caroline, if I can stay with you just a moment. Sure. We've got a, a question from Lisa Carroll from The Guardian saying, you know, what are your views about the government potentially blaming business for not being ready for Brexit? You know, we heard from Michael Gove last week um, in the House of Commons um, and again in the Treasury Select Committee today saying sort of, you know, business, wake up, you need to prepare. Um, a business worried about getting getting blamed for it? Um, I think it's absolutely right that business should do everything uh, it can to prepare. Um, but I think blame would be profoundly unfair. Um, it has been a very confusing picture for firms in terms of knowing what to prepare for. They are um, having to handle the pandemic. Um, so many businesses are focused on keeping their customers and employees safe. Just have a look uh, at what factories and hospitality and retail has done. And I think blame is just not where we should be at on this. I think as with so many other things, we're all in this together. And a far more powerful thing would be to say, right, okay, we are having, we've had political Brexit, we've got economic Brexit coming. Um, we need to know the shape of that as quickly as possible. I do personally think the next two weeks are absolutely critical for that. I know a number uh, of businesses that are planning actually some quite big things that they have got uh, planned, which will affect jobs. Um, and I think actually the uniting thing around all of this that means we're all in it together is we are facing 
uh, a jobs crisis in this country. We saw in the we've seen the job market data today. We've now got unemployment standing at four point five percent. There should be a clarion call to protect every single job we can. Um, and I think the idea of this being about blame is entirely wrong. This is about working together. And I'm afraid I do go back to you know a call I think we have as a business community to both sets of negotiators. And this isn't just you know our, our, it, 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 it's business across Europe. I think having this call of, of the negotiators to protect jobs across Europe, we're all facing this challenge. Um, it is a question of just resolving this as quickly as we can. No blame, recognition of how hard it is for business and give as much clarity as possible. Great. Um, James, maybe I can, I can turn to you. We've, we've got a few questions about sort of the government's position and how worried it is about having a deal, particularly um, given all the, the kind of the new seats uh, Red Bull seats and Red Bull voters um, that, you know, rallied behind the Conservative Party. You know, is number 10 concerned um, about sort of either a backbench rebellion or, you know, what a no deal would look like? And is that driving a lot of the need for and push and enthusiasm for a deal? I think so. I mean, there are two things there. First of all, I mean, the, you know, the number 10 view has always been that the kind of first rule of getting a deal is not looking like you want to do. Um, and I think that makes it kind of hard to read them sometimes for that reason. I, I think the second thing is that um, COVID has undoubtedly changed things. Um, I, I think it has, uh, as someone in government said the other day, you know, we've lost a year already, essentially, of a five-year term. This one year is undoubtedly taken up by this. It, it's hard to see how Brexit wouldn't dominate uh, and if there was no deal, how Brexit would dominate the first six months of next year, at least. Uh, I also think it makes all of those supply chain issues and disruptions greater. I, I think in terms of the politics of it, there are, there are two separate factors pulling them in opposite directions. One is a kind of fear of uh, that Farage is clearly, Nigel Farage is clearly itching to be able to shout Brexit betrayed and kind of start a new party kind of going at a kind of Brexit, um, more sceptical of lockdowns, picking up on all those kind of cultural war issues and trying to, to fight the Tories from the right. I mean, that is a particular challenge for them because you know, if you look at why the Tories are still level or ahead in nearly all the polls, it's because they have no challenges to their right. So I mean, there's that factor. But then on the other side, I mean, there is a concern that, you know, the greater the economic disruption Add that on top of COVID, obviously governments tend not to get re-elected after big sustained recessions, especially ones involving lots of job losses. And as your questioner put it, you know, especially depending on where the job losses might well be concentrated. I also think you know, there is another argument, which is uh, a deal would mean uh, a more gradual period of readjustment rather than the kind of dramatic creative destruction I think you would get with six months of uh, very rapidly with the no deal. Yeah, and, and we will come back to that as well to see if there are any measures, additional measures that you can you could put in place to kind of, you know, um, minimise that disruption. Tony, we've had quite a few questions come in on sort of, you know, timing. Um, obviously, uh, we've heard from James about potentially some of the strategy there. Uh, we've heard from um, Carolyn that, you know, mid-November is kind of like the pinch point for this, uh, you know, and that's when they expect a deal to happen. But in your view, um, you know, how long can negotiations really drag on for? Um, and should the UK be worried about the European Parliament in particular? And if so, why? I mean, I think the negotiations could run into November, first week, November, second week at a stretch. But I mean, there are only so many things you can compress in in the in the remaining time uh, until the, I think it's the 15th of December when the plenary meets in Strasbourg. Um, I mean, the the, the, the the treaty does have to be legally scrubbed. It has to be you've got to get these legal translators who, who translated into the official languages. And also the, the European Parliament doesn't want to be given this thing, um, you know, on the, the night before the plenary. You know, they, they, they'll, they'll want to run this through some of their committees, the Trade Committee. Um, and, you know, they, like if, if, if it's not clear that the Internal Market Bill clauses are going to be removed, then the Parliament may 
be you know more dangerous than its bark uh, its its bite may be worse than its its bark um i think it it is conceivable that the parliament could reject the treaty if those clauses are not there and and the parliament um which has taken something of a back seat throughout the brexit uh, process you know feels very strongly about the the days that it has where where it's in the sunshine and has relevance um so I think overall, yeah, they can keep going until the first week of November, maybe second week, but then it really starts to get way too short and, and they're going to have to get things wrapped up by then. But I mean, if, if they get a favourable signal and a favourable wind from the European Council and if the level playing field and state aid issues are starting to fall into place, then that just leaves fisheries and you would think that they could overcome their differences there. Uh, and get things wrapped up by the end of the the end of the month. Um, but again, you know, uh, there's so much there's so much politics around this. It's it's uh, it would it would be a little bit foolhardy to predict an uh, an actual date. Yeah, and then of course, as you said, the internal market bill being um, so important, particularly to the European Parliament. Some MEPs coming out very strongly um, against that. So again, the timing of the finance bill will will be quite interesting. Um, Sam, um, we've had a lot of questions about the implementation phase. Um, you know, in your view, why is it necessary? Because I know you think it's necessary. Um, and do you think the UK and the EU would go for it? Well, well I think it's necessary because it's just, just if you just approach this very logically, what, you should wait for an agreement to be agreed, have it on the table, and then give, give businesses time to make the adjustments necessary to comply with that agreement. And we, we always used to call this transition period, we're in now an implementation period. I laughed at that at the time because I sort of assumed it would end up being like this. But but, but that's, that, that, that's why it would be a good idea. In terms of wh whether we will have one, I think we can think of an implementation peri uh, period on the sort of spectrum. Because you, at, at, at the sort of most beneficial end, but least likely, you could have an extension of the transition periods that we're currently in via some legal wizardry. Of course, the lawyers currently say that's not possible, but the lawyers haven't been told to find a way to do it yet. So possible, maybe, but very politically unlikely. Uh, the middle of the road option would be, for example, the UK remained party to the single market for goods and customs union for another six months afterwards. So I think the Northern Ireland protocol for the whole UK for an extended period of time to give businesses a bit more time to adjust possible but still quite politically unlikely but then on the soft end of the spectrum you have an agreement between the eu and the uk to take the edge off so for example the uk has allowed uh, has announced a load of unilateral measures for example the ability to allow importers to defer the payment of tariffs and declarations for up to six months the uk is going to phase in the implementation of checks on products of animal origin which are some of the most ardu arduous. Is that something that could be reciprocated on the EU side? Because if it was, that would help. You can also think of other ways that uh, you could take the edge off on day one. One is the enforcement environment. Actually, a lot of the issues facing businesses aren't around checks at the border. They're around what are the legal requirements to place products or sell services in each other's markets. And on day one, whether there's a deal or not, there's going to be lots of accidental illegality. Lots of people are going to inadvertently break the rules. What's the enforcement environment? Are they going to get fined straight away or are they going to be given by the market, relevant market surveillance authorities more time to adjust? In a deal scenario, I see that happening. You can also think about rules of origin where as I mentioned earlier, you actually have to qualify for tariff-free trade based on the amount of local content uh, that's in your good. This is an enforcement question. Again, this isn't actually a border issue. It's just a question of do you qualify for zero tariffs or not? And my view is that the UK should unilaterally say to companies, we're just going to, we're not going to enforce this for six months, but we're going to keep reminding that you do need, you do need to support your, uh, sort your supply chains out. That would mean unconditional tariff-free trade for the first six months. Again, is this something that could be reciprocated? And I'm not saying it's definitely the answer is yes, because you, you know, the EU has lots of issues here as well around competence, around the Union Customs Code, how much flexibility do they have? But that's the sort of implementation phase that I think is more politically likely than, for example, legal wizardry unlocking a further extension of the transition period. Right. And um, we will come back to sort of some of the, the additional measures, but we've had quite a few questions on no deal, particularly. Um, maybe I can start with with James. Uh, you know, if if 
negotiations do end in, in a no deal and, and an acrimonious fallout, how quickly do you think the UK would return to the negotiating table? In my understanding, the, the view in number 10 was that if this ends in no deal, they need to wait for the EU to make the first move in terms of restarting things. I, I think their kind of hope is that the kind of view in uh, Brussels and from what one hears Paris too is that you know the UK will kind of be so badly hit by no deal that will that, that the UK will come running back to the table and, and you know and then have to provide more concessions. I think number ten are number ten's hope is that in the event of no deal they could weather the first six months or so and then you know then they hope that that, that would from a from a better position then resume negotiations. I think one of the other problems is the more likely no deal looks, the less productive these last few weeks of negotiations are going to be because everyone knows that the negotiations, when the negotiations resume, they will the starting point will be where the negotiations have got to last time round before no deal interrupted things. Um, so I, I think that is a complication. I just to pick up on what Sam said, uh, I, I think Sam's view on what kind of uh, uh, what kind of measures are possible after the 1st of January is completely right. One of number 10's really big political worries is that you have Brexit happen on, on uh, at the end of this year and then some issue comes up where uh, a European court is saying what can or can't be done or UK government lawyers are saying no, 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 you can't do this because of EU rules. So I think the idea of anything that would continue to ECJ jurisdiction beyond the end of this year that would be politically unacceptable to the government. I mean, you are much more looking at the kind of stuff that Sam is talking about in terms of, you know, trying to, to soften the edges. And, and do you think the UK government would be ready to ask uh, for something like an implementation phase to soften the edges? Or would it have to be the EU? I don't think they would ask for something that would involve the ECJ jurisdiction continuing. I think if, uh, I think they might say, we're taking these common sense uh, steps at the border to try and keep trade flowing, we would urge the EU to do the same. I mean, that 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 is the kind of space they are in, rather than any kind of formal extension or anything that could be depicted as a formal extension of Britain's membership of the single market and the customs union. Great. And, and Tony, do you think, you know, you said obviously EU leaders have been focusing on other things. This is like the first real time they're going to be discussing it. Um, there might be some drama around it. Have they been you know, discussing what a no deal fallout would look like. Um, and, you know, same question to James, how quickly do you think the UK and the EU would return to the negotiating table? And then I've got a second question, if I may, from Chris Morris from the BBC saying, you know, you, you've talked a lot about the EU, but, you know, it, what's Ireland thinking right now? Um, and obviously, if there is a no deal um, in terms of that border? I, I think the EU... I mean, it's, to me, it's inconceivable that the EU would would really contemplate any kind of last minute implementation or extension to the transition or whatever way it's 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 framed. Uh, not least because there there was such amazement here in the spring that the the UK didn't agree to extending the transition period. So if if it comes down to it now that the UK is looking for an implementation period, um, having already rejected it. Uh, you know, I don't think that's going to go down very well. And the EU, as as, as they like to say, and, and we kind of know they, you know, they're, they're rules based um, the organisation. They're it's everything's done by treaties, and um, I don't think they're going to have that um, discretionary approach to stuff coming into the EU on the first of January. Um, they're, they're not going to. They're certainly not going to phase in. Uh, controls or they're not going to have a policy of phasing in controls. I mean, on the ground, you know, it's it, it, it's, it's not EU customs officers in, in Cali, it's it's French customs officers. So they they might, you know, apply their own common sense on, on the day, but it's it's not going to be mandated discretion from, from the EU. Um, I mean, the EU on, on no deal, yeah, I mean, they, they've, the Commission has been issuing dozens and dozens of notices to member states to alert them to to the risks of no deal um, and you know saying that this is your responsibility and you have to prepare um, and I think the feeling here is that th that that work has been done everybody knows what they have to do if there's no deal and that the, there will be more pain on the uh, on the UK side 
from an Irish point of view, there would be a no deal would be terrible for for Ireland. It would be terrible for the agriculture, agri food sector. You know, we we uh, export huge huge volumes of food to the UK, and food would typically be hit by tariffs in a no deal situation. Um, you know, also we we provide an awful lot of services to the UK. Um, that that would be hit as well. Um, but ultimately, the big problem for Ireland is the Northern Ireland Protocol and how that might unfold uh, if there's a no-deal situation. Um, as Sam and I think James have mentioned, a, a free trade agreement makes the implementation of the protocol a lot easier. The absence of a free deal, free trade agreement makes it, makes it much harder. Um, and in a sense then, you know, if the, if the two sides are kind of have, have sort of come apart in a no-deal situation, then the UK really have their hands on the levers in terms of implementing the protocol. And if there's a lot of bad blood and if it's a very toxic uh, breakup, then, um, you know, the EU might be worried that the UK won't implement the protocol properly. And then that puts the spotlight back on Dublin. If the checks aren't being carried out in the Irish Sea at, at points of entry in Larne and Belfast and Warren Point, then does that mean we're back at square one with the border? Uh, are we going to have to have to have checks and controls there? And that's something that the the European Commission uh, has been saying privately that you know if the protocol doesn't work, if it's not properly implemented, then we are back uh, at that horrible scenario that everybody knows about um, back back to you know where we were in 2016. I'm going to come back to Carolyn very very shortly about sort of given that an implementation phase doesn't look like either the UK government or the EU wants that, what kind of other measures mm -hmm. um, uh, they might be able to take to ease that. But Tony, just before I, I do that, you know, the Permanent Secretary of, of DARA of the, in the Northern Ireland Executive said that infrastructure for, you know, agri-food checks will not be ready by the end of the year. Building on what you've just said, you know, what's the EU's approach to compliance uh, in this sense? I mean, the EU's big biggest concern ha hasn't hasn't been so much um, infrastructure because, you know, I think there's a feeling that, okay, by the end of December, um, they're not going to be 20% of the way there. They're going to be maybe 95% of the way there. And if that's the situation, then they'll figure it out, you know, uh, in terms of building the uh, the infrastructure for SPS checks. Um, their, their biggest concern has been VAT compliance and making sure that Northern Ireland's VAT uh, IT system can can work with all the other member states systems because um, because of the way VAT is treated in the single market. Um, every member state has to have a, a, an electronic paper trail as to where a trade has happened and, and where the VAT has been paid. And if Northern Ireland isn't plugged into that and the system isn't working and you don't have the people to man the system, then uh, Northern Ireland can't effectively trade with the rest of the of the of the EU. Um, I have to choose my words carefully here. Uh, can't trade with the EU uh, and can't trade with the the South very well either. Um, but it it looks like, you know, the 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 authorities in Northern Ireland have been working flat out um, since May to try and get this up and running. They they only started issuing tenders for infrastructure in September, and they are not going to have stuff built on time. That that seems to be clear. Um, but they are uh, employing people. I think they're, they're, they need a hundred extra vets and, and technical staff. They can put up porta cabins if that's necessary as a short term measure. Um, but for for its part, the UK has been, um, you know, in, engaging in in the activity. Um, it's just that the internal market bill has kind of, you know, completely unbalanced the way that whole process was was unfolding. Yeah, that that is interesting, and again, showing sort of, um, and I and and we have had a question actually, James, come in, which I'll ask you later about. You know, did, was the UK government did it did it realise what kind of curveball the the UK internal market bill, um, what it was and what impact it would have, Carolyn, um, you know. Are there any unilateral measures, do you think, that the UK or the EU could take to ease the burden on, on British businesses um, and in terms of, you know, whatever happens next year? 
Oh, there undoubtedly are, Georgina. And, and uh, I, you know, I agree with both James and, uh, and Sam in that, you know, the idea of, sort of implementation periods, so-called or transition periods, business doesn't care what things are called. Uh, it's an intensely practical business, all of this. Uh, and, you, you, you know, the, the, it, hearing Tony talk about porter cabins, this is about things actually on the ground and how goods uh, actually cross borders and how services continue to happen. And we've been asking members what they would prioritise in terms of those easements. And actually three things, actually four things come out uh, most clearly. The first is rules of origin. I mean, this is a brand new thing for uh, as many as 200,000 uh, British firms. And it's going to be very difficult. There's paperwork, there's red tape. And we would like to see a six-month waiver on rules of origin. And it would be very practical. And we think that is something that um, could be doable. It shouldn't be political. Um, it, it should just happen. Um, the second is data, data adequacy, an immensely uh, important issue, not just for tech firms, but for retailers, manufacturers, everybody. And a data adequacy agreement, we would hope, could follow you know, really quickly on the heels of, of, of a deal. It could be considered an easement, could be considered something else, but really important. And then there's aviation. I mean, aviation is kind of in a category of its own because there's no WTO uh, backstop or, or, on aviation. Uh, and, um, you know, we want people to fly. And although we've got a massive tourism industry, of course, but it's not just about that. We're a services economy, um, trade is a contact sport. We need people uh, and goods to be able to uh, to fly. Uh, so those, And then the, the fourth one, which actually Sam mentioned, this issue of illegality that comes up time and time again with businesses I speak to. Toy manufacturers, not sure if their toys are going to be legal uh, in, 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 in Europe and vice versa. Some kind of sort of um, st stay of prosecution uh, around enforcement and whether that's six months or, or, or a year. Um, those are the top four. But I do think, you know, we, we would like to work with government to kind of identify that list because that was four things. It's probably, you know, 104 by the time you've gone through um, every sector. Uh, and how we get the practicalities worked out between now and the end of the year is exactly the kind of thing we'd be able to do if we had a deal in place. That's interesting. And we've and we at the IFT have been quite interested in knowing how that sort of whole process of communication has gone this time round between business and, and government. Um, Sam, I was going to ask you uh, uh, about fisheries, but um, I might ask you instead about sort of this third country uh, status. Uh, uh, you know, it's something that's come up. So Matt from Groening goes in terms of the curveball on the internal market bill, um, what will this mean for third country listed status? Can you kind of just clarify briefly what that means? And do you think this is just leverage on the EU side? So this is about the third country listing and, and SPS measures, so food hygiene measures, whether the UK is authorised to, to export products of animal origin to the EU or not. Uh, because the UK obviously is a third country. Uh, the UK is a third country to the EU. We're not in the EU. But in terms of the listing issue, so this is this question as to whether the EU would grant exporters in the UK the ability to continue to sell send products of animal origin to the EU. And this was raised as a justification for the UK's uh, am amendments to the withdrawal agreement, Northern Ireland Protocol, via the internal market. They said the UK the was threatening to blockade food from entering uh, Northern Ireland and threatening to starve Northern Ireland and the like. It was clearly not true. But 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 but, but no, the, the the government created an after the fact justification for the for the measures they're taking in the internal market bill. And the reason we know this issue of third country listing wasn't the reason that the government decided to bring up this issue of uh, of export summary declarations and state aid reach back into Great Britain via the internal market bill is the internal market bill had absolutely nothing to say about third country listing. So it, I think the backlash to their approach to the internal market bill took them slightly by surprise and they needed a good justification. And probably someone on the EU side had said, well, we might not list you at some point because they'd been using that threat throughout. But I don't think it would probably ever applied directly to Northern Ireland. And I, and I do, of course, think the EU will list the UK as being able to send products of animal origin to it. Um, it was just a sort of silly negotiating ruse that then got blown up into something much bigger. We're fast running out of time and I do have a... a a last cheeky question I want to ask the whole panel but before I do um, James you've got a question from Ren Kortebeck from um, Klingendal in the Netherlands um, saying you know how strong do you think the revolt would be uh, among Tory backbenchers and the ERG in particular if, if the Prime Minister does indeed pull those sensitive clauses from the UK internal market bill in order to reach a deal with the EU do, do you think that's 
possible or is that something that the EU also needs to bear in mind in terms of the government's calculation on Brexit? My, my sense, and, and this is this is more instinct than anything else, but based on those Michael Gove comments you were highlighting uh, from last week's appearance in the House of Lords, is if there was a deal, the UK government would declare victory, say that it had you know got all the assurances it now needed on Northern Ireland, it had now been listed for third country status and the like, and then pull the clauses from the bill, saying that because they had pushed the EU into a more realistic position, they weren't needed anymore. Um, I mean, they, there would be two, three reasons for that. One is the European Parliament point that Tony made, which I think people are beginning to become more aware of in Whitehall. The second is the current state of the US presidential race. Uh, it, it would, keeping the clauses in the bill would uh, make it you know, more difficult for the UK to get off to a good start with any incoming Biden administration. Uh, and then I think the third point is, the House of Lords. I think you know. I, I think the, the the government did not anticipate how strong the reaction from uh, Tory Brexiteer peers in the House of Lords would be to this idea, and I think their expectation was that because it is about Brexit, that they would do a couple of rounds of ping pong with the Lords, and then the Lords would say, "We don't like this, but we will allow the elected House to have its way." I think because you've got people like Michael Howard and Norman Lamont saying what they're saying, the House of Lords is digging in on the grounds that this is about the rule of law rather than about Brexit. And I think if Michael Howard sticks to his position, that will uh, embolden other peers to to um, hang tight uh, on, on this question. So I, I, my, 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 my hunch, and it's a, but a relatively strong one, would be that if there was a trade deal made, the UK would, would, would declare victory and pull the clauses. That's interesting. We've kind of missed uh, the drama in the UK Parliament. Maybe the House of Lords is where it's at at the moment. Um, you should be paying closer attention. Tony, one final question to you, and then I'll have a, a question to the whole panel. We had a question from John Pete uh, about mini deals. We've heard, you know, um, some reports in 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 particularly in the Times over the weekend that uh, potentially if there's a no deal, the EU would strike mini deals with uh, with the UK in particular sectors. Do you think that is at all possible? Um, or is it just again, um, yeah, just just wishful thinking? I mean, I think the EU has always um, included a, the potential for a mini deal on aviation and a mini, de mini deal on road haulage. Um, uh, if, if there's no deal, um, that's seen around here as as pure self interest, um, and that if there are any other. Uh, many deals over time, they would be done uh, purely for unilateral benefit for, for the EU. Um, in other words, they wouldn't they wouldn't be done as a way to, to mitigate no deal for the UK. Um, so that that's the sort of state of position, and that's been the position for quite a long time. So I think here it seems in in the context of this being again something of an internal UK discussion. Uh, rather than something the EU is 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 telegraphing that they would they would do, um, but certainly they have said um, time and again that that aviation and road haulage would be two areas where they would just you know it would make sense to keep planes flying and, and trucks uh, rolling, um, but beyond that th there's nothing there's nothing kind of tangible that they've promised, um, but of course you know over time who knows what might happen. We're over time, but I'm going to quickly turn to each of you now, starting with you, Carolyn. Um, do you think the UK will leave the transition period with a deal? I am travelling in hope. And I believe, given where we are, given what's at stake, uh, given the positive noises that we're beginning to hear, despite all the issues we talked about today, I think we will leave with a deal. Make it sooner rather than later, please. Great. Sooner rather than later. Sam, what's your view? And I will say that someone in the chat box has asked for percentages, but I will not be asked for percentages. Do you think the UK will leave the transition period with a deal? I should caveat by saying I'm, I'm an eternal optimist on, on this issue and have been quite consistent over the course of the year. I do think the uh, UK and EU will reach an agreement and the UK will leave with a deal. I just don't think we should kid ourselves as to the content of that deal. And I still think it will be quite rough for businesses when it comes to the adjustment. James, what's your view? 
I think your deal is more likely than not, but there's still there's still a few there's still a few twists in this tale to come. But ultimately, I think there probably will be one. Okay, and Tony, final word to you. I think a deal is more likely than not. I, I would agree with James and the others on that, uh, simply because they've, they've travelled so far and they are close, even though these are very difficult uh, areas. And and you know, a no deal is just bad news for everybody uh, in in the times that we live in. Um, and I think for that reason, they will just try their best to get to get an agreement over the line. But again, um, banana skins are there, and uh, I wouldn't discount something dramatic happening over the over the next two weeks. Well, that's all we have time for, unfortunately, uh, today. Thank you so much to my panel for their time and for their comments. There's so much more that we could have done. We we obviously didn't touch on the US presidential election, how that might impact whatever happens what Macron might or might not say this week. We haven't pronounced, I don't think we spoke about uh, Angela Merkel, the Chancellor, German Chancellor, uh, you know, the, but we did sort of hint at some drama potentially uh, this week in Brussels and also in the House of Lords. So lots to look forward to. Um, thank you so much to our viewers and listeners as well. Thank you very much. <laughs>